Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Andrew Donson on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Youth in the Fatherless Land, War Pedagogy, Nationalism, and Authority in Germany, 1914 to 1918. I was a little kid in the 1960s during the Vietnam War, and my uncle was actually fighting there. And I can tell you that it did not occur to me for a moment that the United States could ever lose that war because I had been taught that America couldn't lose a war. Vietnam was this little bitty country, and we were the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I spent a lot of my time building models of American tanks and ships and planes and thinking about the heroic adventures of my uncle in Vietnam. I have to say I was very shocked when the United States pulled out. Andrew Donson has written a really terrific book about a a generation that I guess was uh, not unlike the American generation in the 1960s, except that things were much, much more severe in Germany. As he points out in the book, German children were taught that the war was a great and noble cause, and they clamored to participate in it. And so they were disappointed when Germany suddenly lost and was thrown into chaos. And this sheds a certain light on the rise of uh, both radical left-wing and radical right-wing groups. I enjoyed talking to Andrew today, and I'm sure that you will enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Doing very well. That's good. Uh, You are in Massachusetts. What town in Massachusetts? I am in Northampton, Massachusetts. Really? Is that right? I didn't know you were in Northampton. I uh, visit there often. My in-laws live there. It's, yeah, quite, it's a very it's, nice place. It's, very, it's an a, idyllic place. Reminds me a lot of Iowa City. I should tell our uh, listeners that we're talking to Andrew Donson today. And um, I have read his wonderful new book, Youth in the Fatherless Land, War, Pedagogy, Nationalism, and Authority in Germany, 1914 to 1918. I highly recommend it to you. It is, as I said to Andrew in the pre-interview, a topic that I have been waiting for someone to do for a long time because it is something of a mystery to me how uh, supranationalism of the Nazi type is born, what contributing factors. And, of course, Andrew is quite forthright in saying that he doesn't explain it uh, completely. Nazism and supranationalism was not uniquely determined, as philosophers like to say, by uh, the nationalism that you find in pedagogical practice during the First World War. But nonetheless, uh, I suspected it was there, and it was there, and Andrew does a terrific job of analyzing it and laying it bare for us and drawing these threads together. So thank you, Andrew, for writing the book. Thank let me, you for that. It's my pleasure. Let, let me uh, ask you uh, to begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up in Irvington, New York, which is in beautiful Westchester County, and I went to Cornell University as an undergrad. I was a philosophy major and specialized in German philosophy, and after undergraduate, I went to Germany and taught English there for a year and a half and learned German and decided I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do, so I applied to grad school. Yeah, 
Right. And I always tell people, you make these decisions when you're in your early 20s, and they end up structuring the rest of your life. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, because I wasn't a history major, actually, my first years in grad school were challenging. Um, in the end, though, being a philosophy major as an undergrad has served me well, because I actually do teach philosophy class oh, really? now here okay. at University of Massachusetts. Um, and uh, so I studied at University of Michigan. Uh, my doctor father, my advisor, was Jeff Ely, and my my doctor Muta, my uh, other advisor, was Kathleen Canning. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I loved Michigan. Had great great time there. Wonderful colleagues. Felt really stimulated. Um, and then. Graduated in 2000, I was itinerant for about four years, working at different places, and then came to University of Massachusetts, which I just love, and I feel so fortunate to have wound up here um, with having wonderful colleagues and a stimulating uh, environment and a beautiful place, too. Yeah, it is a very nice place. As I say, I, I, I visit there from time to time to uh, allow my uh, mother-in-law to see her grandchildren. It's very nice. She visits us out here as well. Uh, and I actually lived in Ann Arbor, too, and, and quite like oh. that. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, uh, Iowa City is sort of like Ann Arbor, but without all the wealth. And, yes. or, or the crack. Yeah. <laughs> no crack in yeah. Iowa City, really, but there was yeah. when I lived in Ann Arbor. So in any event, um, maybe you could uh, tell us how you came to write this book. The project started, uh, I'm a little embarrassed to say, in 1994, as my first seminar paper in graduate school. At that time, gender history, uh, I guess it still is, gender history was very popular on the Vogue. And there was already much written about uh, uh, women in the First World War and actually gender women in the early 20th century. And I was racking my brain trying to find topics and discovered that nobody had written on youth in the First World War. And I knew very little about what this subject was, what it meant at that time, and it turned out to be serendipitous because the project became more and more interesting and, at least to me, seemed much more relevant to bigger issues in German history as I developed it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, it became my dissertation um, and discovered uh, uh, that it was much bigger Um, in part by fathoming and determining that there was this enormous change that happened during the First World War for youth and in education, and that this this was pretty significant, I think, for the development of at least early fascism, that is, the the right wing immediately after the First World War, and also for the left wing, uh, the Communist Party, mm-hmm. uh, immediately after the war. And at the same time, it was a significant experience for everybody else, although people tend to be more interested in communi- you know, radicalism, radical communism, and obviously fascism, and that's the kind of selling point for the book. But it also deals with bigger issues about liberalism, reform in Germany. I never mentioned the word Sonderweg in the book, but it does engage in that debate, at least implicitly. Um, yeah, that's funny. I just read a philosophy book, or I read about a philosophy book, rather, um, 
It's actually mathematical philosophy. I like philosophy as well. And uh, the author, uh, he says in the introduction, the word algorithm is used a lot, and nobody knows what it means. And then in the index of the book, it says, algorithm, see effective solution. <laughs> that's all he says. He doesn't use the word at all. So no Zonderweg. That's really quite an achievement. You should yeah, get an award just for that. Yeah, what it, what it means. Yeah, please do. Um, that had, for a long time was the paradigm of German history, at least the big question was whether the origins of Nazism are to be found in Germany's peculiar, and uh, the Sonderweg in German means special development, whether Nazi, the origins of Nazism are to be found in the peculiar development of Germany before 1914, that it had an advanced capitalist system, highly dynamic capitalist system, but a backward political system, authoritarian, and the combination of these, uh, of this uh, highly dynamic ca- uh, capitalist system um, with lack of experience in democracy made Germany susceptible to uh, an authoritative regime, or at least want one, during the worldwide economic crisis in 1929 and the early 30s. Uh, part of the Zondervig thesis is that Germany did not have democracy or didn't have democratic institutions. Uh, didn't really have many liberal institutions, um, that it was dominated by aristocrats, narrow-minded aristocrats who tried to maintain their power and the power of the monarchy through repressive practices. And one of the key theses in the Zondervate thesis was that schooling in particular was really harsh, really uh, brutal, and was used as a way to put down the working class and even the lower middle class to uh, uh, incur- to to develop people who knew how to conform. Mm-hmm. And in the 1980s, uh, there was a rise in critique of this paradigm, this view. Uh, most of the strongest evidence came from uh, the dis- not so much discovery, but the demonstration that Germany, in fact, had very vigorous reform movements that aimed to topple the authoritarian structures, authoritarian mentality. And part of one of the main reformers was the, was the women's movement. Um, uh, the other one was the, uh, obviously, the, the socialist movement. And then uh, the other big one was, was the youth movement, which Germany had a... Uh, Unlike other, any other country, Germany had a very large network of youth clubs that ran on the principle that adults were not allowed in them, mm-hmm. and that youth would lead youth because adults were too authoritarian, and youth needed to develop their own culture and their own way of living in order to heal the sores of modernity. So mm-hmm. it was a, an attack, um, at least implicitly, on the kind of main sources of authority, which was the state and also parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my book is very much deals with those issues uh, about the degree where where we find reform in uh, pre-1914 Germany and also during the First World War, so pre-1918 Germany, um, as well as dealing with these questions about the rise of fascism and radical communism. I'm I'm reminded of a relatively embarrassing fact least embarrassing to most Americans, and that is when around the turn of the century, around the turn of the 19th century, that is in 1900, when uh, 
Americans wanted to learn about how to run school systems, everything from universities K through 12. They went to Germany to find out. And when the Germans wanted to learn about eugenics, <laughs> they came to the United <laughs> States. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of odd, kind of odd like, thing, yeah. About yeah. That. Uh, so uh, anyway, maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, the the history of education in Germany in the 19th century broadly, because it's quite a remarkable one. I, I'll kind of give away uh, the punchline or a spoiler. My understanding is that it was really, by most standards, incredibly effective and progressive. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Germany was the first major country in the world to achieve universal literacy. Um, that part of that process began in the Enlightenment in the 18th century, but Germany was on the forefront of elementary school education. You know, Swedes. The Swedes are going to uh, write me now and tell me that Sweden is a major country. <laughs> I'm going to get email because of that. And you know, Swedes you. out there, love you, love you. Yeah. You were there first, but yeah. the Swedes don't listen anymore. Yeah. We're going to focus on Germany yeah, because okay. it's much bigger and more powerful. Um, so, and the, the German Volksschule, which was the elementary school, did become a model in the rest of the world for how to teach kids on the cheap and teach them the basic skills of reading, uh, uh, literacy, and mathematics. Um, and in the, in the early 19th century, and I didn't address this in the book, but German education tended to be ex- extremely progressive and encouraged free thinking. Um, Germany founded the, the, high school, the classical gymnasium, mm-hmm. which is, focuses on knowledge of the ancient world who was not focused on nationalist themes and tried to create the, the German word is gebildet, a person who was knew about the ancient Greeks and the Romans and had read the Iliad and the Bible um, as well as French literature um, and this kind of cultivated well-rounded person was the goal of the educational system, at least in the high school. High school is not. Yeah, I just wanted to. I wanted to jump in here, and it was a huge yeah. wager on um, teaching people to think rather than teaching people to do. And this is something that all Americans love. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, if you look at a liberal arts college like the one I went to, and then you look at the f- sort of courses they took in gymnasium in the 19th century, you can easily see. Uh, Symmetry there. It was really quite a quite a large bet on what we call liberal education. That is not um, things that matter. Although the Germans had that too. I don't know when the Fachschule system was invented, but uh, yeah, that they really were. Again, I mean, we think of these things as very progressive. That's yeah. all I wanted to point out. Yeah. Um, and uh, but after the rise of socialism, at least in the 1870s, and the foundation of the German nation, um, giving young people the, tool, the ability to read and write, which were the tools to, cha- to challenge the political system and to engage in the political system. I think administrators increasingly became concerned um, that they were undermining uh, the monarchy by educating young people uh, to, and giving them the ability to uh, later oppose the monarchy. Um, and this is where I, uh, I do fall in some way in this old uh, view of the Zunderfake. That is that German schools before 1914 
generally tended to be authoritarian. Um, and I, I actually wrestled with that question because my advisor who wrote the book that criticized the Zundavik thesis and emphasized that there were all sorts of liberal reform movements, um, uh, suddenly I was thought of, well, maybe he's not right about at least this for education. So I, I wrestled with this for, you know, a decade. And, my, uh, you know, I did determine that, on the, uh, that German schools tend to be authoritarian in two ways. Um, one is that they excluded talented but poor kids from rising up through the school system. And they favored the education of elites and people who already had money. And they did this in a peculiar way, which is that tuition for high schools was extremely expensive, but the state paid for half of it. And that meant that the vast majority of people could not afford to send their kids to high school, uh, particularly because of the opportunity costs, which meant that their children mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to earn at that time. But in addition, they'd have to pay these fees. But those who could afford it were got subsidies, effectively, from the state for the education of their children, mm -hmm. because the state was paying for half of it with taxes that it collected uh, from everybody. Um, so in that sense, the school system, which was a key institution, not, I would say, the key institution in blocking social mobility and maintaining the power of the elites in Germany. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was a sort of, you have to have money to get money. Exactly. Problem, yeah. Exactly. Um, and there were, I mean, there obviously were exceptions to this. There were scholarships, and there were lots of people who went through the educational system and became socialists, for example. Almost all the leaders in the Socialist Party were uh, educated in the Um But for the most part, it reproduced the strict social divisions in Germany. So that's, that was the first way that they tended to be authoritarian. The second way was in the teaching methods, um, which were notorious for being. Uh, favoring the, the drill system, um, kind of flashing creative thinking, wrote, favoring rote memorization. And uh, part of the reason for this is that it's actually quite hard to lead a uh, elementary school class with 50, sometimes even 60 kids in it. And you need to have kind of need discipline <laughs> in order to to control it and actually to make it effective. And in fact, it was a, you know, it was a pretty good uh, approach to teaching lots of kids on the cheap. We, we don't, incidentally, this is a big uh, question in American pedagogy, but I was just been given to know that we don't call it um, discipline anymore. We call it classroom management. Oh, right. Yeah, see, that makes it much better. Yeah. Right. But I just imagine today, you know, if uh, American schools today were run on the model of these German schools before 1914, God, teachers' lives would be a lot easier, you know? You wouldn't have kids talking back to you. I mean, everything, you know, you had complete control of that classroom, and, um, and the kids learned. They did their homework. Um, and but in any case, kids were were terrified. Parents were terrified of particularly high school teachers who had incredible power to determine the fate of their children. Um, unlike in England, where the teachers were uh, um, often privately paid, in Germany they were state officials. They were Beamten, and hence they were almost untouchable. 
And if they sullied their child's record, there was really nothing a parent could do. And so parents taught their kids to absolutely respect the authority of the teacher. Um, and kids were terrified of their teachers. I think it's one other thing we need to say about it that you that is implied in the back of our conversation, but I don't think many of the listeners would know because I had sort of forgotten that these were men. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and that was nothing actually that um, in my uh, revisions of the book that I had kind of ignored this, but you know, in finally bringing it all together, one of the astounding facts of uh, German educational system was, was that it was overwhelmingly male. Whereas in all the other developed countries, at least in North America and Western Europe, at the turn of the century, women outnumbered men, you know, uh, by a significant factor. I mean, maybe it's three quarters women teachers, female teachers in the United States and Great Britain. Um, in Germany, it was, uh, you know, something like, uh, well, depending on your region, it could be between 60 and 90 percent. Um, in the high schools, uh, almost all men and all the administrators were mm-hmm. male. So it, it reflected that uh, male. Uh, uh, the other thing is that a good deal of these teachers were reserve officers or they aimed to be reserve officers. So the cultures of the, of the schools were heavily male and reflected the values of mm-hmm. grown men who were reserve officers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and, and that, that's the kind of classic view of German schools before the First World War. And it was satirized in Heinrich Mann's that mm-hmm. and lots of other works. Um, and it, there's, there's really overwhelming evidence that this was the general character of schools. Now, of course, there were lots of exceptions to this. And that's what I begin to deal with in my book. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about those. Yeah. So increasingly, after the turn of the century, um, with the rise of adolescent psychology um, and also a uh, series of suicides by high school boys who left behind notes blaming their schools for their misery, um, there uh, increasingly with criticism of this kind of uh, teaching. Um, Interestingly, it came mostly from elementary school teachers who were often called the step-siblings, step-brothers of the high school teachers because the elementary school teachers did not go to college. They were not considered civil servants and so didn't have the same type of of rights and privileges um, and were poorly, poorly paid. Um, and they also stood much more under the authority of the administrators who could fire them for all sorts of transgressions, from voting for the Socialist Party to not tipping their hat to their administrator when they passed by him on the street. Um, and increasingly, this, this group, um, as part of a larger process of mass mobilization of the lower middle class in Germany at the turn of the century, that is their involve, increasing involvement in politics and their feeling that the political system disenfranchised them because it favored these aristocrats and upper middle class people uh, and wanted increasingly to be involved in the political direction of the nation, that these elementary school teachers began to challenge this way of schooling that reinforced the uh, the, both the class differences and, uh, and um, encouraged conformity. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so they increasingly, and this was also an international movement, this reform pedagogy movement began to a large extent in Sweden. Swedes are listening. Swedes, all right. Uh, with Ellen Key, who claimed that this should be the century of the child. Um, and they increasingly wanted a education, educational system that was much more flexible, that allowed, uh, that, uh, incur- that permitted or promoted young people based on their intelligence and their talents. And they could make pretty strong arguments for that, saying that, you know, in Germany, we're going to be a more powerful country if the smartest people get the best education, mm-hmm. um, which was actually particularly convincing during the First World War, mm-hmm. as all these talented people were killed. Uh, in the trenches, and also also they thought that these harsh teaching methods, rote memorization, was both ineffective, um, but also didn't encourage critical thinking. And to be now a member of a nation that was going to involve all sorts of people, and not just represent the elites who needed citizens who could think for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and this movement had pretty much been ignored in most, what was called the reform pedagogy movement, was pretty much ignored in the, in the historiography, in the general literature on German history before 1914, which tended to emphasize instead that there, this kind of authoritarian side of education. Now, the thing is, these elementary school teachers um, held lectures, they sponsored research institutes. They were highly active in their professional organizations. They disseminated literature among themselves. But the administrators opposed this, these types of reforms. Uh, the education minister, at least in Prussia, was an aristocrat. He was pretty narrow-minded. Actually, they were all aristocrats. They were pretty narrow-minded. All of the regional administrators were, were aristocrats um, who tended to be sometimes ex-military men didn't really seem to care that much about education. Um, And so these elementary school teachers were kind of on their own um, trying to make these reforms, and they had very little success putting them into practice before 1914. And one of the grand theses of the book is that, in fact, it was the outbreak of the war with when you would expect society to be more militarized, introduction of mass conscription, um, requisitions of people, uh, farmers' livestock, all uh, the declaration of martial law, which allowed uh, generals in each region to, in, uh, on the home front, to rule by decree. That on the one hand, you know, during the war, Germany became a much more authoritarian place. And so, what's so surprising is that these types of softer pedagogical uh, reforms, teaching methods that encourage young people to think and to challenge authority were introduced during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of, um, that, that I think is one of the great contributions of the book is to, to, is to demonstrate that yeah. pretty incredible change. Yeah, no, I, it is, I think, one of the major theses of the book, if not the thesis, major theses of the book, and it, it is a wonderfully exculpate, exclu- ex, uh, I'm sorry, I got a new mouth. I'm just trying it out. It's wonderfully explained. Uh, Sorry about that, listeners. And uh, you have a terrific source base to work with. I mean, I'm just reminded when I was reading it, I I just thought to myself, you know, you can tell children to use finger paints, but if you tell them they can draw anything, you don't know what you're going to get. And I remember when I was a kid, I talk about this in the write-up to this interview, 
I drew pictures of soldiers. That's all yeah. I drew. I, yeah. I was only interested in that. And, uh, yeah. and even to this day, I teach a military history class, but uh, we probably shouldn't go there. So in any yeah. event, tell us how um, these techniques uh, made their way into schools after the outbreak of the war, and who brought them into the uh, pedagogical sphere? Uh, well, there were several things that made it possible to introduce these reforms after the outbreak of the war. Um, the first thing was that the war inscripted um, thousands, tens of thousands of teachers and administrators. Uh, the war also disrupted uh, just the, the, the school day because schools would be closed for victory holidays. Uh, oftentimes schools would be requisitioned or occupied by um, soldiers being mobilized. And so the disruption of the war, and this was total war, um, made it necessary for schools to improvise, um, that they couldn't follow the old lesson plans and the way of doing things. And administrators recognized that. So there was now an opening to change the curriculum um, and to innovate and to deal with the problem. Um, secondly, uh, because on August 4th, all the political parties in Germany, including the socialists who had been staunchly anti-military, voted in favor of going to war, Everybody in Germany thought that Germany finally was a united country, that there was no more political strife. In fact, that they would point that. There was no more political strife. We are finally a nation that has come together. And the belief was now that it wasn't as dangerous to teach young people to think for themselves because everybody thought that Germany was great mm-hmm. <laughs> and that war was great and was united behind this policy of, of war. Um, and then the, the third thing was that the teachers made the case that these new soccer teaching methods that allowed kids to think for themselves, and by these methods, what I think, what I, what I, uh, what they were was, for example, uh, kids could bring in poems that they had found and read them aloud in class. Um, there would be more free discussions rather than drills. They would be given a poem and asked what they thought about it. Um, and most importantly, there was a new way of teaching writing called the free essay in which they were given a topic or they could choose their own topic or they could write an autobiography or they could write a fiction on anything they wanted. Um, and the administrators favored that now because uh, they thought it was a good way to get kids to internalize and get excited about the war because they believed that all these kids were enthusiastic about the war. Um, so that's how it got implemented. Mm-hmm. So one of the sources that you find, and again, I was very envious when I heard about this, were, in fact, these essays that had been set. And you yeah. uh, do a terrific job of collecting them. I love sources like this. And in fact, when I have graduate students, I tell them to try to find things like this. Uh, you know, that is a source base. In this case, it's a lot of essays written by um, kids between what and what age? I don't know. Uh, they were from age six to age nineteen, mm-hmm. and they were they were said essays uh, within a range, and uh, then some of them were published and some of them not published, and you kind of scoured the archives and you found, really, how many? 1, a couple thousand? Yeah. No, twelve hundred. Twelve hundred. What's well, still a lot? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that it's still yeah. a lot. And then you do some content analysis on them with really fascinating results. And uh, 
maybe you could just talk a little bit about what the kids were writing about and how they wrote and so on and so forth. Well, you know, with, with, what, what I think is, makes the, this chapter convincing is that not only do I show, demonstrate these changes in policies, but then I have a set of, another set of evidence, which is these essays that are the legacy or the result of those changes. And uh, before the war, the main way of teaching writing was to present kids with a outline and a thesis, uh, give them all the content, tell them what the conclusion should be, and then they write the essay. And these American observers who, you know, lots of Americans went to Germany to learn how to run schools, you know, they were always astounded that this was, <laughs> this is the way that Germans reproduce conformity. They were really non-plussed by it. Um, and uh, the kind of reformed pedagogical way of teaching writing was to give the kids a picture and tell them to write about it, um, which was called a free essay. And what I discovered was that uh, before the war, administrators frowned on these free essays. They allowed the teachers to use them sometimes, but they generally didn't want them to use them. But during the war, they saw them as a really great way to get kids to be excited about the war. So as long as the topics of these free writing exercises was about the war, um, they were permitted. And so teachers would say, you know, write an essay on what you like the best about the war. <laughs> they would write these essays. And the content of them is pretty interesting because uh, on, on, because they, these kids were given a lot of freedom to write what they wanted, you actually do find a fair number who, at least in my ratings, um, uh, seem to be vaguely anti-war, at least critical of the war on one level. So, so this, this type of new exercise, which was, aim, which was aiming to get kids to be enthusiastic about the war, um, in fact, um, because of this, the softer message, often encouraged them to be critical, too. Um, but that was really the exception, and the vast majority of them tended to be highly nationalist, and there's a good deal of them, maybe about 25%, in fact, are written in the first person um, uh, in which the kids are imagining, imagining themselves to be soldiers. And many of those are extremely violent, in which they imagine smashing Frenchmen's skulls and have uh, expressed these fantasies of you know, killing hundreds of soldiers and becoming heroes. Um, and they got these representations from the things they were reading, uh, probably also from the stories that were going around. Um, but I, I guess what, what was different about these kids writing these kinds of essays versus, say, drawing pictures of uh, you know, soldiers and tanks, like I, might have, I did when I was a kid, um, was that the war was really happening. Yeah. And these kids were going to become soldiers. Mm -hmm. And it went on for four years. It, this was, they wrote these kind of essays all the time in school and really began to imagine themselves or to fantasize about what it would be like to be a soldier. And, of course, they were very uh, sanitized images of the war. They themselves never got wounded. Mm -hmm. uh, they were always heroes. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the theses of the book is that when the war ended, and the book deals with this generation that did not go to war, that was too young to be conscripted, 
or at least if they were conscripted, they didn't get trained fast enough to go to the front. But these boys, at least, um, grew up imagining and yearning to be soldiers and then never had that opportunity. Germany lost the war and they were angry mm-hmm. that they didn't get the chance to try to defend right. German their, honor. Their expectations had been raised and then exactly. dashed suddenly. Exactly. Yeah, and it's um, funny because I was a, we, we talked to Hillary Earle a few weeks ago and she wrote a book about the Einsatzgruppen trials after the war and one of the things she points out, she does kind of a cohort analysis of these people and she says that they were almost all precisely of the generation you're talking about. They were in uh, some sort of high school, let's say, during the war, maybe were conscripted right at the end, never trained. And, you know, some of the famous Nazis were, in fact, these people. I think that uh, I'm just pulling this out of my ear, but I think Heydrich and, and Himmler were both yeah. exactly Martin of... Bormann. Yeah, that they never fought, but they, yeah. they were, they were uh, you know, they were sort of gearing up to fight. And, and particularly as these SS officers in the Holocaust, I mean, about 80 percent of them were born between 1900 and 1908. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that's very important because, yeah. you know, again, one of the things that, that attracted me to your book was precisely the, I, I think, common, what, what, what should be, I think, a, a, a reasonably uh, sensible and obvious thesis that if you want to understand how people act later in their life, you should see what they were taught earlier in their life. Yeah. And I think people had paid a lot of attention to the form of a Prussian education, but they didn't pay very much attention to its content. And you do a terrific job of showing that it, it was really, uh, really very pro-military and that this uh, pro-military sensibility didn't have to be foisted on the children, that it really was almost native to them. They, yeah. they, um, they pretty much fulfilled all the expectations of their teachers in that way. I, w- I want to go back to something you said because I'm a kind of student of the media, and uh, you make a terrific point that I want to emphasize, and that is that these kids uh, were uh, among the first generation, first or perhaps second generation, of kids who had access to mass literature. And this is primary for a technical reason because um, mass offset printing had been developed. So they had these things. I don't know how many of the listeners know what these are, but Penny Dreadfuls, uh, we'd call them paperback books, um, that were full of sort of pro-war stories. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that literature. Yeah, I mean, the, the turn of the century was the golden age of children's literature, um, particularly in England. Um, in Germany, uh, <laughs> there was actually pretty poor literature written. But, right, this was the first time in the history of the world where one... Uh, people had achieved literacy. Young people could all read and write. But actually, more importantly, books became cheap enough because of offset printing and also because of the increasing prosperity um, and the rise in wages and uh, the uh, according rise in leisure time that kids spent a lot of time now reading books in a way that they hadn't even 30 years earlier. And, you know, after the war with the rise of the cinema, and then with TV in the 1950s, uh, reading didn't have that, it no longer had that kind of, yeah, that's, that's it was exactly no longer right. the central yeah. media. Yeah, no. um, so during the war, uh, uh, immensely popular uh, were these lurid, about 30 page paperbacks um, uh, by these boulevard, smutty <laughs> presses uh, that uh, ended their 
series on detectives and cowboys and love affairs, which were the staples, and instead just published stories about the war. And the stories were pitched towards young people. Um, and it was usually a boy who uh, uh, absconded without his parents' permission and stole money and went on the train, got a uniform, somehow got a gun, was involved in a battle, killed everybody, and became a hero, a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old. Um, and um, there were millions of these printed. They were incredibly popular. And adults really across the political spectrum hated them. Um, even conservatives who felt that this was not reality, that uh, uh, this was not real heroism, um, this was pubescent fantasy. Um, and the other end of the political spectrum didn't like them because they were military. So they were banned. Um, but they were only banned in certain districts because the the way that the martial law worked was that each in each of the 25 districts in Germany, the deputy commanding general had the right to rule by decree. Mm -hmm. And it was only a few of the districts that they were banned, the significant ones like Berlin and uh, Leipzig, where the, where the publishing industry was. Um, but nevertheless, the, the publishers were able to get around uh, these bans, and kids traded these books on the black market. And we find that you know, the schools tried to confiscate them by offering money or offering the day off from school if they turned them in. And sometimes they turned in thousands um, that they had collected and then rummaged through um, paper bins. And so this was another source of uh, these fantasies about the war. I mean, one of them was the ones that they got in school through this uh, war pedagogy curriculum that encouraged them to be enthusiastic about the war. But the other source of their fantasies came from these lurid uh, paperbacks. Yeah, I think I that I'm, I'm sorry, I was going to say, I just think this is an absolutely terrific point, and I would love to see a supervisor dissertation on, on just this literature and a kind of a quantitative one, because uh, I, I have a book coming out about the history of media in general, and this generation, or perhaps the one before it, was the first to actually have its heads filled with fantasies about how wonderful going to war for your nation was, because prior yeah. to this, either nobody could read or the literature wasn't available for right. largely technical means. And right. it was particularly unfortunate, there's a kind of confluence of accidents here, a kind of conjuncture, that it happened right before a, a war in which modern industrial killing was invented. So they were really amped up to go and thought they were all going to be heroes, and they were uh, enabled by modern technology and, and, and tactics and operations to slaughter each other in incredible numbers. Yeah. So, uh, and then, you know, I mean, if, if you look at literature after the war, it's, it's really quite shocking if you, one of the things that I, I – one of my favorite books, and I think the only book I've ever read uh, – the only novel I've ever read completely in German <laughs> is All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah. And, you know, that book really shocked people because it turned all that stuff on its head. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, it's a, I think it's just a terrific – it's a terrific topic. And, a, and, and, a, and people today, we're just drenched in, in f fictive images about everything. And we get yeah. them in all – you know, they basically come in all our orifices. They, you know, we can't keep them out. Um, yeah. And uh, but people then were not. They they were yeah. kind of naive about these things. Uh, yeah. we, we we are very skeptical of the media, but I'm not sure that they were. Anyway, I'm sorry for that digression. Go on. Yeah. Um, and also skeptical about war. Um, yeah. No, that's in right. In 1914, people were all over Europe, despite some good books that have criticized an older view that people were universally enthusiastic. Yeah, people were pretty gung ho about what was going to happen. By contrast, in Germany. 
in September 19, uh, August 1939, on the eve of the Second World War, despite Nazi propaganda, six years of Nazi rule, people were terrified. Yeah, that's right. For again. Um, so it's a kind of it's a, a different context. Yeah. And I should point out to the listeners that we've only really gotten through a few chapters. Of yeah, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> and the book is about it's a it's a kind of total his comprehensive history of abuse yeah. in the First World War, and we just dealt with education well, let's, and reading. Let's, let's move on then. Yeah. Um, so I should maybe just point out just uh, in this for the sake of time the structure of the book. Yeah, there's also a chapter on youth associations, uh, and Germany was peculiar in the world for having uh, widespread clubs and organizations for young people. Um, about half of all p- kids who lived in cities were members of some type of club, whereas in England, maybe about 10% were. And so Germany was, uh, was in a much better position to mobilize kids for the war through these clubs. Mm-hmm. Germany was also the only place in the at least Prussia was the only state in major state Scandinavian don't listen major state in the war uh, in the world at the start of the First World War that had uh, tens of thousands of paid recreational officials for mm-hmm. young people who organized them. Um, they had done that before the war, but now when the war broke out, Germany was in a particularly good place to mobilize the labor of young people. And one of my arguments is that Germany did this far more effectively than the other countries. Mm-hmm. Got kids to take in harvests and to collect recyclables, um, to march and get trained in military youth companies, mm-hmm. um, which was another source of this um, internalization yeah. of patriotism. I know that, if I could just jump in for a second, uh, when I was reading your book, it reminded me of something that I realized a long time ago. I know Tocqueville is very famous for coming to the United States in the early, sort of mid-19th century and saying American Americans are real joiners. We're a nation of, of club formers. And I, I always thought that he could have just gone across the border to Germany, because the Germans yeah. are absolutely wacky about clubs. Oh, they, totally they have are. clubs for everything. Yeah. I mean, they have beer drinking clubs and yeah. you know, felt hat clubs yeah. and clubs for uh, people that collect paper clips. And yeah. you know, really, it's astounding how many clubs they have. Everything is a club there. Yeah, there's an adage, which means two people, a meeting, three people, an association. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, so they really are a weird nature of, of, of joiners. So this, this youth movement doesn't... Um, I mean, I, I guess I kind of knew about it, having spent a little bit of time yeah. in Germany, that they really were, were big on, on clubs of various sorts. Yeah. Um, and, and then the book also deals with the effect of mass conscription. That is, eventually, two-thirds of all men, age 18 to 45, were in the army. Um, and so the home front became a... Uh, well, about half of the people on the home front were under age 18 now, because so many men were gone, and the other half were uh, adult women, um, and uh, I guess also men who failed their military inspection. Um, and so, on, on the one hand, authority was undermined or uh, was mitigated by this new political situation and the uh, uh, introduction of war pedagogy and these reform methods. But the other way that authority was, uh, uh, why authority over young people diminished, was because so many men were simply gone. As teachers, two thirds of all teachers were conscripted, um, policemen, uh, and fathers. Um, and so part of the book all deals with that decline of authority over, well, most of the book, that's one of the main pieces, is that the book deals with the, that decline of authority over young people. And 
part of what I think makes is the essence of fascism and communism, um, despite Hitler being a authoritarian leader, at least the early fascist parties are disrespectful mm -hmm. of existing authority. Mm -hmm. They don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're kind of in your face, um, as well as the communists. And so these, uh, it, I, I do believe it was the experience of growing up without uh, fathers and authority figures that encouraged these young people who overwhelmed, uh, who were overwhelmingly uh, streamed into these fascist groups and, and radical communist groups after the war. That it was the experience of the war that um, that encouraged that. Now people always say, "Well, it happened, that happened in um, the other countries too." Um, yeah, it did, but they didn't lose the war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't think they were mobilized as much yeah. as these young people were. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the place where they, you know, it, people say, hey, well, Italy didn't lose the war, and they had uh, fascism. Well, well, the thing in Italy is that they won the war, but everybody felt like they lost the war. Um, they had the mutilated victory. Um, and so it was the experience of, of losing the war uh, and this, lack of authority on the home front. That was one of the key ingredients in why these young people uh, streamed into fascist and communist groups after 1980. Mm -hmm. I think one of the wonderful things about your book is the fact that you use things like truancy statistics yeah. and crime instincts, uh, not, not so much just as a direct indication of the amount of criminality, but also as an index for the loss of authority, the evacuate, the, uh, what does one say, the... Um, uh, the evaporation of authority in this area. I mean, I was, yeah. I, I kept the Lord of the Flies kept coming to mind. That, yeah. You know that all these kids are really running around and they are not being supervised. And yeah. uh, we have that a little bit in Iowa City on Friday and Saturday nights downtown. It's not, yeah. it's not I, I, a pretty thing. It really isn't. Uh, so I've been, yeah. I mean, happily, we're not at war with Nebraska or anything. So uh, it won't be, it won't be any fascist movements in Iowa City. I think. Uh, but the schools, you know, eventually to move on in the book, the schools fell apart at the end yeah. of the war. People got really hungry and desperate. Oh, it was terrible. I mean, it was yeah. just, sometimes I mean, I actually did cry many times uh, when I came across cases. I mean, it's just it just breaks your heart. I mean, people were starving. I mean, it's estimated that seven hundred thousand civilians died because of inadequate food and uh, coal and um, uh, kind of medical attention, um, and so you know, the beginning of the war was kind of this exciting. I mean. I don't say it, but it was kind of fun for kids, I think. But as the war went on, it was a really horrible. It was it was horrifying um, to live in uh, with constant death and mutilation um, and starvation and cold. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and uh, uh, I could I could tell you stories as kids, but uh, it was just terrible, terrible life. But well, it, it, would be time to live. Yeah, no, it really it really was very very bad. The turn up winter and all that. The it, it, I guess this may be simplistic, but I'll say it anyway just to see how you respond. It seems to me that they had a kind of bifurcated, a twofold response to this, though. Uh, some of these youth movements and the political parties that emerged after the war drew the conclusion that we shouldn't fight any more wars. Yeah. But others drew the conclusion that next time we have to get it right, and the only way we can do that is to start from scratch. Yeah. Uh, is that uh, too crude? Yeah, I would, I would say that. I mean, then, you know, the later chapters deal with the growing anti-war movement, um, and the, the enthusiasm of young people, who, who teenagers, spearheaded the anti-war movement in Germany. And that's in large part due to the fact that uh, men were in the army mm -hmm. and couldn't 
couldn't lead it. Um, and secondly, that there was less authority over young people, fewer policemen supervising them, fewer parents, and it was much easier for them to get involved in anti-war activism. Now, that was actually a pretty small group, relatively speaking, um, and uh, maybe not even a fraction of 1% of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, and the vast majority of people in Germany of all ages, I think, were just ambivalent. I mean, you have to you find yourself in a situation where you say, "Well, this war is terrible. I want it to end." On the other hand, you know, we've conquered a good deal of Russia. Uh, we're occupying huge swaths of territory in the Ukraine. Um, by 1918, they, the war in the east was over. Um, and you think, well, maybe we should just hold out a little longer and see if we can win and then that'll be better than losing <laughs> even going back to where we came where we were in 1914 given all the sacrifices that we made so I think most the vast majority of young people were ambivalent like that but there were these groups on the extremes these boys who became and they were largely boys who became fascists and uh, both uh, female and male teenagers who became diehard anti-war communists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the book also deals with these developments uh, at the end of the war, um, deals with the rise of crime. Um, as you can imagine, when parents are gone, it's easier for young people to have sex, to get away with it. Uh, also, you had young people now, uh, young men in teenagers, often in uniform, who had girlfriends that were younger than they were. And by virtue of wearing a uniform, they could assert their right to kiss their girlfriends in public, which would have been taboo before the war. Um, and so in general, there was this kind of breakdown of uh, supervision of young people, which I think was one of the great legacies um, of World War I in Germany. Well, let's ask the big question right now. We're kind of running out of time, but I want to hear what you have to say about it, and that is how do we get from uh, the evidence that is provided by your book to uh, the rise and victory of Nazism. Well, I was also very careful uh, and not to make the claims about the connections between uh, the experience of youth in the First World War and the, the Nazis per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I. I didn't. I don't mention it anywhere, really. Uh, I, I mention it in the introduction, and then it's nowhere in the book until the very last section of the book, uh, in the conclusion, that is somewhat speculative. Um, and but but there is good evidence um, that uh, immediately after the war ended, 19, you know, November, December, nineteen eighteen, January, February, that these uh, boys who had never fired a gun. Uh, streamed into the Freikorps, which were paramilitary, uh, anti-Republican groups that went into Russia and fought Bolshevik insurgents and fought Polish uh, nationalists and Republicans and then came back to Germany and actually fought against Germans who uh, wanted a different type of political system and actually shot them, and that these groups were had a large contingency, at least a third maybe half of them by the spring of 1919 were these boys who had been too young to have been soldiers during the war. And they had yearned to be soldiers, and they were angry that Germany lost the war, and also now that the monarchy was overthrown and they were going to have this republic uh, run by the socialists. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, what 
I and I have some biographical evidence that uh, certain of these uh, men who, be, who went into these fascist groups, you know, had these particular experiences that I described in the early, in the rest of the book. Um, but of course, I, I don't have a lot of that evidence, and so it's really about a correspondence. Well, look, these young people are in these groups. Mm-hmm. You know, why are they in there? Well, it has to do with the story that I just told in the book. Uh, what I don't do is that it's pre- show that it's precisely those kids who had these experiences mm-hmm. um, and have it quantitatively mm-hmm. show it quantitatively that led them into those groups. And so that that part of the book is so much somewhat speculative, and I've been criticized for it. I'm sure the criticism is going to come in the book reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if I left it out, I would have also been criticized. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's in many ways the most interesting. And, and I think in history, the most interesting times in uh, 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 books or theses in histories are ones that are uh, that you have to demonstrate that are that aren't clear-cut mm-hmm. and that could be challenged mm-hmm. and that a historical argument is one that's not apparent and needs evidence and if it's so watertight that um, no one can challenge it then I don't know how interesting it is. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. I should say also that um, your book made me think about a conversation that we had on this show with Peter Frischa a few months ago about his book, I believe it's called Life and Death in Nazi Germany or something like this. And one of the theses of that book, the listeners will remember, is that uh, part of the appeal of national socialism and kind of right-wing groups in general in the 1920s and 30s was that many Germans, having lived through the end of the war, felt that Germany was under a kind of existential threat, that the question wasn't how will we go on, but if we will go on. And I think that uh, your book does a terrific job of making me understand at least how somebody who had seen all the victories in um, 1917, you know, the defeat of the Russians and so on and so forth, and then to have it all suddenly come to an end and in an environment of starvation, really starvation, people were starving, uh, that, that this must have been a tremendous shock for them. And they did wonder, perhaps, it was an if question and not uh, how question yeah. about the existence of Germany. Uh, it, it is bizarre to us to think about that, but we didn't live in that situation. <laughs> yeah, thank so, God. Yeah, thank God is right. <laughs> I mean, I, God, one thing I tell my students is, is there anything you learn from this course, or any of my courses on early 20th century Europe, um, be thankful that you live now. Yeah, no, I tell all, I tell all my students that. I say, you know, we live I mean, in the, the Russian historian. Yeah, well, I tell my students in general, we live in the greatest time and place and, uh, you know, that you, you can imagine for a human. I don't think that... Uh, I don't know how much they really believe that, but if you study enough of this history, I think you will come to believe it. Uh, You you really will. Um, So uh, let me um, thank you for being on the show. It's really been terrific talking to you. We've taken up a lot of your time. Um, Maybe thank you you so much for having me. Oh, no, absolutely, my pleasure. You know what? It 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 enables me. The the show enables me to talk to all kinds of wonderfully interesting people like you. You know, I I have a I have a great seminar every week. (laughs) <laughs> you think about it like that. Um, world's largest graduate school, New Books right. Industry. Anyway, Andrew, maybe you could tell us about your uh, your ongoing project or your next project. My next project is about the 1918-19 revolution. And my parents, a lot of people say, revolution? There was a revolution in Germany? Yeah, right. Well, yeah, it was a revolution that overthrew the Kaiser and set up yeah. the Weimar Republic. Um, and uh, I... After the book was done, I actually have done some more research on young people, uh, youth during the revolution, and 
thank God it confirmed the things that I wrote about in the book. <laughs> um, so that research is coming out soon. Um, but uh, it's, uh, I find this period immediately after the war to be fascinating, and historians haven't really problematized it or kind of thought about it deeply enough, mm-hmm. um, in that almost all the literature on the revolution is about the Freikorps, these paramilitary groups, the Socialist Party, the military, um, the Communist Party, the Worker and Soldier Council, and is this basically this high political military history. But the, the incredible thing that happened immediately after the war is, one, women got the right to vote, and it was the first, Germany was the first major country Okay, Scandinavian yeah, countries. Right. <laughs> you got the, women got the right to vote there. For, Calm the down, first, everybody. Calm <laughs> the down. The first major country where women got the right to vote, and it happened at, at, at three days, uh, well, immediately when the war ended. Um, at the same time, the home front was predominantly female, um, and now all the men came home. So you have a situation where women, for the first time, had full political rights, at the same time that patriarchy was reintroduced into homes with the men coming home, and women were required by law to give up their jobs for the returning mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that confluence of events that historians haven't really thought about. How did all these soldiers assim- assimilate back into their their lives? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, to me, it seems astounding. What was what, it, what was it like to? Uh, uh, for, for a young a young person or uh, a woman to live for four years basically without a man in the house, um, and then all of a sudden win political rights and have your man come home, mm-hmm. and uh, who is probably traumatized by the war. Mm-hmm. Um, many people, you know, do develop great hostility. Other people, uh, <clears throat> you know, PTSD, mm-hmm. um, and what that experience was like. So that, that's part of what I want to do. Um, also, in these months following the war, we uh, Germany transformed from a monarchy into this Weimar Republic, which is you know, famous for its avant-garde culture, um, its libertarian, uh, libertine ways, um, <clears throat> the rise of this new woman, uh, a li- liberation or relaxation of sexuality, um, g- great art movements. And I also want to trace, you know, how did that happen? in these months of the revolution. So it's going to be a cultural history of the revolution mm-hmm. uh, rather than a political history. Well, it sounds terrific, and I hope that we can have you on the show when it's done, and good luck with the project. And again, let me thank you very much for being on the show. We've been talking to Andrew Donson today about Youth in the Fatherless Land, his terrific new book. Andrew, thanks very much. Thank you, Marshall. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Andrew Donson about his new book, Youth in the Fatherless Land, War Pedagogy, Nationalism, and Authority in Germany, 1914 to 1918. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.